Welcome to the Thanks Therapy Podcast. Before we start, if you're in crisis or need urgent support, please Google the Samaritans and the country in which you live. Help can be found online and via the phone. We also put local and national helpline numbers and links in the show notes and on social media. Don't suffer alone. Things can and will get better. Enjoy the show. Hi, I am Dr. Emma Lowden. And I'm Hannah Lowden, and this is our therapy appreciation podcast, Thanks Therapy. Where we hope to demystify, destigmatize, and encourage the appreciation of good and useful therapy. And today we are not just two, Hannah. We have triangled someone <laughs> in to use a family therapy joke. We have drawn a third person into our unstable dyad. In other words, we have a special guest in the studio with us to help us learn more about family therapy. How exciting. Yay! Woo! Thanks therapy! Thanks therapy! For doing all you do! Thanks therapy! Thanks therapy! Don't really know if you should go. You should give it a try. It could be good for you. Before we start, I just wanted to do a brief summary piece about the origins of family therapy. Um, So my knowledge of family therapy is that I used family systems theory in my PhD. um, And that's the theoretical underpinnings of family therapy. And obviously I worked with parents. And when I worked with parents, I did think systemically about the families in which they lived. But I didn't use family therapy techniques because I'm not a trained family therapist. Um, And there are distinctions between these different practices. So before we ask our expert guest to introduce herself, I just wanted to go into the background as briefly as possible. And rather than reading directly from Wikipedia this week, Hans. What's wrong with that? Nothing. I've done it myself many (laughs) a time. But I am actually going to quote myself because this is taken directly from my thesis. Yes, that's very baller. Thanks very much. Um, So family systems theory emerged from the structural functional paradigms of social anthropology and sociology in the 50s and 60s and was initially developed by Dr. Murray Bowen, a psychiatrist, through his research into families with a schizophrenic member. Mm -hmm. So Bowen, like other radical psychiatrists and psychologists of the time, rejected the dominant psychoanalytical perspective of solely individual explanations and proposed that the key to treating pathology lay in understanding the influence on the individual of the family or the system within which they existed. Okay, great. So in addition to that, then, the family is a system within the larger super system of society and it attempts to maintain equilibrium by adapting to demands and changes in the larger system. And in this way of thinking about the family, we can begin to see how forces both internal and external to the unit can exert pressure and influence on the individuals and the whole. And a prime and timely example is the global pandemic of COVID-19, which has created huge pressure on families due to problems entirely external to the family, while also leading to or exacerbating difficulties within the family. So basically, Bowen argued that the family was an emotionally interconnected unit and that were complex interactions between the individuals um, and that they could be understood using his family systems theory. Um, Now, it had eight interlocking principles um, which it would take too long to explain here, and it they don't make much sense when you just say their names out. Yeah. Um, but they include the fact that often when there's tension in a dyad, a third person will be hooked in in a process called triangulation in order to spread, deflect, hand or hand over the anxiety or tension. Just for the listeners, 
What is a dyad? A dyad is a relationship of two. Yeah. Um, And so when this is done to a child, which is often the way the pattern goes, so there's tension in a parental relationship and they they hook one of the members of the dyad will hook in the child Mm. and deflect the anxiety onto the child. And that can often lead to symptoms in the child. So that was what um, Dr. Bowen had observed and why he came up with this concept. Um, Also, another one which is quite useful is the differentiation of self is a good one to talk about. It's not a million miles away from individuation, Mm -hmm. um, especially when it relates to children. Um, And it's basically differentiation is um, being able to be an emotionally connected person within the family and also autonomous. Yeah. And when there's not enough differentiation, the opposite of that then is codependency. Well, another word for it would be enmeshment, which oh, is, enmeshment. The, is the family systems word, or um, fusion. Fusion. Yes. Fusion sounds good. No, so fusion is when those parts cannot separate. So right. the individuals cannot separate. They're too enmeshed. They're too stuck together. Mm. And so they can't really be autonomous individuals. Um, so that's the theoretical background, really. But we want to find out how this theory actually applies in practice. And in order to do that, we need a practitioner. An expert. Yes. So we would love to welcome you, Martha. It's very good to have you here. And thank you for coming. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us here. This is unusual for us. It is. It's exciting because we've had a guest before, but it was via Zoom. So having another person and a third microphone is really, feels like we're professionals. I know. It looks like you're professionals. Oh, thank you. <laughs> you're seeing behind the scenes here, you know, not many people get to see this. <laughs> but um, yes, it's lovely to have you here. And we wanted to ask you just to introduce yourself, if you wouldn't mind. Yes, my name is Martha Campbell and I am a systemic psychotherapist, otherwise known as family therapist. Brilliant. Most people. Thank you. Um, and... So we were very keen to get your views on family therapy. It's not something we know masses about. No, I definitely Um, don't know a lot about it. I basically used some family systems theory in my PhD. Mm -hmm. And as you know, I worked with parents. Yes. Um, So I feel like I have some ideas about families Mm -hmm. and about parents, but maybe not about family therapy necessarily. So can (laughs) you tell us a bit about how family therapy works? So... Uh, systemic psychotherapy or family therapy is an attempt to look at the relationships between each other. Uh, we have a belief that we belong to each other mostly mm. and we are who we are because of the other person in front of us. And because of that, we sometimes experience life in potentially a negative way, especially if our relationships with each other are difficult yeah. or we are going through times or experiences in our lives which are hard mm-hmm. and very often what we find is when you're in a family situation especially adolescents or children they have um, adults in the room parents mostly who want to make it better yes them. our belief is that most people want to make it better for mm-hmm. each other and they um, manage that to a a better or lesser degree I think yeah Uh, so we um, in systemic psychotherapy want 
to explore those relationships. And I suppose it's really about, you know, how do you understand what's happening to you in the context of your relationships with each other? Mm. Um, and that's... So it's sort of viewing um, difficulties that people come across through the lens of their relationships. Would you say that that's yes, a way Yes, we're to... all part of each other. We're all part of relationships. Mm. We're part of families. We're part of systems. So um, I know who I am because of my relationship with you. I know who I am because of my relationship with my daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a different relationship with my daughter to the relationship that I have with you. Yes. Um, so uh, I... Define yourself by the relationships that you have with others to a certain extent. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. So I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way. When you look at the theory, it always says things like, um, you know, families are an interconnected unit. And because family systems theory is based in general systems theory, the metaphor was always like if one part of the system is broken, it affects all other parts of the system. Mm-hmm. Would you would you think about it that way in terms of so if somebody in the family unit is having a difficulty that has a ripple effect onto mm-hmm. other people? It can have a ripple effect. It can also be we ha- there's a very famous paper called uh, the repo- the problem of the referring person. Right. And th- what we mean by that is the person who refers in refers the family in very often has an idea about what is wrong. Oh, so yes. They- Into therapy, you mean? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So very often. So for example, um, there are, you'll find many um, family therapists in child and adolescent mental health. And it, systemic psychotherapy is is one of the therapies that you can avail of in CAMS. Mm-hmm. And so you often have a psychologist or a nurse or a social worker who will be working individually with a young person and believe that from the conversations that they're having with that young person that they could avail of family therapy. Mm. And I agree, they could avail yes. of family therapy. <laughs> I think everybody could do with family therapy. Um, however, their idea of what might be going on in the family may not be the same idea as the family's idea. Oh, so sure, yeah, definitely, very often, yeah, very often, yeah. So you, so you would have a maybe you have a referral saying, you know, um, young person is uh, self harming, for example, mm-hmm. and um, mom and dad have split up, and. Um, the implication is that the self-harm might be in relation to the parents splitting up. Mm. Yeah. And then so you come to the session and you have a conversation and you say, you know, there's an idea that it might be to do with the fact that, you know, you split up. Yeah. And then they might say, no, my grandmother died mm. or they, yeah, they actually, lost their best friend or, or yeah, or somebody yeah. has cancer. Mm-hmm. or And so there are different ideas about um, you know why somebody should come into family therapy and so once they come in to the family therapy then we can start to explore the relationships between mm. between them and explore what the issues are so self-harm is a very good example because it's a silencer in families yes um, and most people with self-harm or suicidality especially in a child mm-hmm become so terrified that they become paralyzed mm. and they do not know what to do. And some people go, some families, some parents will um, go very, very close into the child 
and suffocate them in terms yes. of, you know, you can't go out, you can't do this, you're not allowed your phone, I have to watch you 24-7 and others, you know, put their head in the sand and these young people feel nobody loves me, nobody cares. And, yeah. you know, so there are lots of different reasons why. And one of the things that we do is explore with parents and we explore with the young person what is happening in the family, what's going on, who knows what, who knows. How do we talk about this together? Yeah. In a way that it doesn't feel frightening. Yes. Um, that's very interesting. What it made me think of as well is, um, so I've been doing some training with third year uh, psychiatric nurses in Queens. And so we were working on the therapeutic relationship. And so we're really working, we're getting really back to basics about how do you establish a therapeutic relationship? What are those first stages um, looking at advocacy and looking at stabilization and all this kind of stuff. And one of the first things that we talked about was not making assumptions. So because somebody is referred in and it says, um, you know, they have they have an eating disorder. This is a teenage girl with an eating disorder. Um, and they used to be they used to be into sport and they were at quite a high level in their sport and now they've given all that up. And one of the groups was talking about this and they started to say, you know, trying to get her back into the back into the ballet, back into the sport, back into the gymnastics that, you know, she was very high achieving at that, that that could be really good for her well-being. And I said, those are quite high pressure environments, though, you know, it, this could be a contributing factor. I think that would be something that would have to be explored. And I think that speaks to not assuming mm-hmm. that. I really love this idea of the refer. The idea of the referrer is often wrong. Yeah, not um, not necessarily wrong because in family therapy we don't really talk about good and bad and right, right and wrong. wrong. Yeah, that's not really because those those um, concepts can be unhelpful mm. because um, it, it's just an idea. So we explore all the ideas, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that idea. Um, permeates the conversation afterwards. So we might have an idea that it is to do with the, say, for example, my previous example, the separated parents, mm-hmm. they may say, no, it's to do with this. And so you you explore this. And then session five, you might find, actually. It is to do with that. Well, well it's partly to yeah. do with that. It's not this idea that, you know, it's you go all in. one explanation. Yeah. yeah. That would be lovely if that, that was the case, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> much easier to fix. I'd be very rich too. <laughs> <laughs> I found the answer. <laughs> yeah. I'll write the book. Yeah. <laughs> So Martha, you practice and live in Northern Ireland. Do you find this fa- this kind of therapy and the way you work to be particularly useful and relevant in Northern Ireland, given our sort of post-conflict setting? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Uh, I mean, I suppose I don't want to say that family therapy is specifically for people from Northern Ireland, but no. I do think that it has, <laughs> yeah. I do think that it it has... It is very helpful in the context, especially in Northern Ireland. Mm. Northern Ireland, we have a saying, as you will all know, whatever you say, say nothing. Mm-hmm. And that is a huge um, message that we give to each other as a society. Yeah. Do not say, uh, do not say out loud something that will get us into trouble. Because for 30 years ago, 20 mm. years ago. It could really get you into you, trouble. You could, be, you could be killed. Yeah. You know, and so it is was a matter of life and death. And mm. I think it, that cannot be underestimated, um, the level of trauma. And what what I mean by trauma is as well as the physical trauma that people experienced. Um, and I certainly don't want to underestimate that. But the 
the psychological trauma of the Troubles in Northern Ireland are the thing that really sets it apart from other conflicts. Yes, absolutely. Our um, focus on fear. Mm-hmm. And as a society, we were frightened and one side frightened the other side. Yeah. And so it was much but much easier to stay in your in your silo, in your yes. in, with your people. And your mm-hmm. people meant, you know, the people who you went to church with, the people that you went to school with, the people who you lived with. So that is one of the explanations why we have we ha- still do, but we had such a segregated society. Mm-hmm. Was it um, safer? Much yeah. safer. Yeah. Um, actually, in my PhD, so I was um, interviewing um, parents, family members, carers, children, where there was they were living with a parent with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And so what I expected to find was, um, you know, children with, you know, anxiety or depression, behavioral problems. I expected to find carers that were under strain. I expected to find parents that were dissatisfied with services. What I didn't expect to find was people tell me stories of being traumatized by paramilitaries, essentially, and in, in mm-hmm. within, and this is not even, this is young people, mm-hmm. but it was a range of people. So it was some of the 20 year olds, the, the mm-hmm. people in their 20s that I interviewed and some of the people in their 50s that I interviewed were saying about things that had happened to them. Now, some of them were physical threats on their life, for sure. But also some of them were um, that their a family member had been harmed or a parent had been in, in, you know, involved in some way, harmed in some way, or just that there was a culture in their area of, well, if you step out of line, you will be. Now, this wasn't even the other side. This yes. was actually within the area. Yeah. So I did not expect, naively, I think now in hindsight, I did not expect to find that people were under such stress and pressure from paramilitaries working essentially as like pseudo police forces yeah. and pseudo kind of social services within mm-hmm. areas, policing young people, you know, um, controlling the mm-hmm. controlling drugs, controlling crime, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I mean, to use another phrase that we know here in Northern Ireland, it hasn't gone away, you know? Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's, yeah, that's fascinating. But I didn't, I suppose I didn't think about it so much as of how much that would impact families and the transgenerational yep. impact of that across families. Was Is that something that you would see or Absolutely. have seen in your career? Absolutely. Um, we would work with a huge number of families who um, are experiencing transgenerational trauma. Um, uh, children who have never experienced what we describe as the troubles, mm. who will tell us stories that have come down the generations, but also who have experienced parents who are absent because they themselves have been traumatised as yeah. teenagers um, and have not been able to parent effectively because of the PTSD that they're experiencing or the trauma symptoms that they are experiencing. Um, and uh, it it is perpetuated down the generations. There's mm. no doubt about that. Um, yeah. And so our work, I suppose, in terms of the systemic work is to sp- support people to have conversations. One of the... Um, there's a systemic psychotherapist um, who lives in Northern Ireland, Arlene Healy, mm. Heaney, um, and she coined a phrase, uh, she took the phrase from the politicians, but the talks about talks. 
And if you remember, in the Good Friday Agreement, we had talks about talks. Yeah. So Arlene Heaney, she worked um, uh, in the Family Trauma Centre and she spent a lot of time and energy uh, working with with uh, families and young people um, impacted by trauma. She still does. Mm. Um, I think it's more um, in her private capacity. Uh, and she talked a lot about how you have conversations about what will it be like to have this conversation, to have this conversation, who will be mm. most frightened, who will say the most, who will say the least. You know, if we said the worst thing possible, what would that be? Yeah. If this was the last session of, you know, that you came to, what would we have talked about? Mm. Yeah. Um, would there be other things to say? You know, those yeah. sorts of things. And I think it's a, it's a nice way of, of beginning the conversation because you, many, many people come to therapy thinking, oh my goodness, we're going to have to tell, the, you know, the deepest, dark secrets of our life. Mm. Yeah. And yet... They very rarely do. Well, they do, but in a way that they don't realise they've done it, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's interesting. You had said before, Hannah, that, you know, you feel like we're old hats at um, the going to therapy. But maybe that's, you know, some people are going to struggle telling that story. Yeah. I mean, this is this is strangely relevant to the stuff that I'm doing in therapy at the moment if mm-hmm. I might make it all about me sure um <laughs> where it's about not necessarily I think we were chatting about this earlier before we started recording but not necessarily talking about what happened mm-hmm. but talking about um what didn't happen or the things specifically the things you wish could have been said oh. in certain scenarios and I have found that unexpectedly very difficult which I did not think that I would Okay. So um, I guess the sort of assumptions and um, anxieties about how I'm perceived or about how another person is perceived in this certain story I'm telling are more painful to recount than the actual, you know, event that I entered the session wanting to talk about. Ah. Um, And that has surprised me. And I'm, what, four years in? Mm. And uh, so, I mean, my point is I'm not an old hat. Sure, yes, I'm still surprising I'm you. being challenged in that way. But that's just one-on-one. When you were talking there, I was thinking about um, how all of that sounds so, like, valuable mm-hmm. um, because it's there's so many different parts, there's so many different people yeah. involved and all the dynamics between them all will be so complex. Mm-hmm. That seems so rich. It's interesting you talking there because I'm starting to think about, you know, what questions I might start to ask you. So oh, yeah. be, be careful I don't start <laughs> systemic psychotherapy with you. So um, I'm uh, one of the things that is a huge theme in my work is shame. Mm. And that often comes when you talk to people about what, you know, so if I ask, you know, what do you think Emma thinks you're thinking now or what oh, yeah. do you think Emma thinks about the fact that you've, you know, talked about that publicly or, you know, or what, you, trying to mentalise, I suppose, a bit trying to think about what the, what the other person is thinking. And that can be um, hard if you are in a, in a relationship where there is shame mm. and you are ashamed of maybe something you've done or something you've, you've said. And that can be, you know, thinking, I was, I was thinking about the um, example we gave with self-harm or mm. eating disorder, as you talked about a minute ago. Yeah. That is a behaviour that is deeply shaming for yes. most people. They yeah. don't want to talk about it ever. 
um, and yet they have to come and talk about it yeah. to, to us. And so that that in of itself can be difficult to come in. Of course. You know. And I think that that technique of what would it be like if we had this conversation is such a safe technique. So for somebody who's really deeply traumatized, that it is a very, very valuable <coughs> technique to have. Well, what would it be like if we talked about that thing? To just enter into the idea, imagining what, what yeah. that conversation would be like, how it would feel to have it. It's dipping your toe in really, isn't it? Dipping yeah. your toe into the to the idea of having the more difficult conversation further down the line. And hopefully then that creates an atmosphere and a safety that you, you're leading towards that more difficult conversation. That's what I was going to say. It's It's like a sort of... It's, it's almost protective in a way because mm-hmm. you're not going, right, we're going to talk about this thing today. Get ready. Here we go. It's <laughs> like, yeah. how, you know, let's broach it gently. How yeah. do you think it would feel? And what I find being asked those questions is it's a lot more intense than I thought it was going to be. Mm. So it shows you where your sort of parameters are or yeah. how ready you are to talk about something. Yeah. Um, I think sometimes revealing. also we're less cautious with ourselves than hopefully a good therapist is you know yeah. sometimes I mean not always sometimes are more people are more cautious but I would I would often be less cautious and I had considered doing some um Jungian sand tray work mm-hmm. and I was really just like yeah I'll do it yeah let's do it and and my therapist was like oh no no that's not we this is we just have to really contain this and it's you know it's preparing for it and it can be very very powerful and you know and I was like, all right, okay, I'll hold back But then. it also doesn't help that you came and talked about to me about it. And I was like, oh, it's brilliant. You're going to love it. Oh, it's brilliant. Just get in there and get in that sand. And then, it, you know, it, as you find out, it's a lot more vulnerable than you first yeah. anticipate. Well, I had done a, a day's workshop in play therapy and um, it was brilliant. But I hadn't that, it wasn't that long after my separation. And I was doing this day's workshop in play therapy. And honestly, within 10 minutes in the first group discussion, there was somebody in tears. And it wasn't long after that before almost everybody was in tears, you know. <laughs> we were doing Talk creative work. It was very intense, yeah. <laughs> and whenever I told my therapist about that, she was, I was telling it like a funny story. We were all crying in the room and, you know, making clay models that we didn't know what they meant. And <laughs> she <laughs> was horrified. She was horrified at the lack of, you know, safety involved yeah. in that. Because everybody was practitioners, you presume that, oh, you're you're yeah. all perfectly fine. You mm-hmm. you couldn't, you know, you must have all sorted out your issues already <laughs> if you're practitioners, you know. You're not only yes. ever just a practitioner, though, are you? No, of course. Nobody. No, there's a reason why we do this work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's be clear. Yes. You know, especially some of us who come into mental health. Yeah, mm. that's true. And we talked about that last week, didn't we, Hans? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that it's definitely, I think, you know, the this, this sensitivity and the experience often leads you in that direction and leads you into this kind of work. Um, I wanted to ask you about something else, um, which I know is a bit of a silly topic, but um, so in Bowen's original family systems theory, there was the eight interlocking principles or interconnected principles. And one of them was sibling ordering, right? Now, I know that that is mostly being debunked by (laughs) psychologists and therapists alike over the time, but it is something that people find really super interesting, Mm -hmm. despite it being kind of not that informative. Mm -hmm. Like I've often had people 
say, oh, it's a classic eldest child or it's a classic, you know, young middle child or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I've thought, well, what, but what does that mean though? What does that really mean? Um, do you ever find that to be useful? Do you ever find that to be informative? Like if somebody is an eldest child or like me, if they're a baby, you know, I'm the baby of the family by quite a number of years. Would you say that that would be informative about finding out about my relationships in the family? No. <laughs> in a word however sure. <laughs> um it's not something that we would necessarily Ever, ask really all oh, right okay so it's not it, it isn't something that we would we would necessarily think even I'm just thinking about my own practice I'm uh-huh. not so sure that I would ask you know oh I noticed that you're you know the baby of the family and mm. uh, do you know that all babies blah 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 whatever it is it's supposed, sure, to, yeah. Yeah. It's supposed <laughs> to do in your family yeah. however generalizing across the board <laughs> yeah. Yeah. everyone who's the youngest does this um <laughs> but what I would what I would be interested in is what is it what is it about the position that you have in your family how do you think the other people, the, your siblings and your mum and dad, how do you, how do they think about you in yeah. the family? Well, I mean, I could definitely answer that question. So I was a baby by 13 years. So my sister was 13 years older than me. And then my brothers were 18 and 20 years older than me. And so I felt like I was always running to catch up with them in my life. I was always trying to grow up quicker than than I should have done. Whenever I was a, a very young teenager and coming into the teenage years, they were all having parties that looked really great fun and leaving me out of them. Mm-hmm. Not for that many years, to be fair. I probably joined in far too early, really. <laughs> but um, And they, I know that they all thought that I was spoiled and that I was a bit of a princess and that I was the favourite often, that they thought that, which how I was do you know? Okay how, um, so that. my question, I suppose, would be, how do you know that? Well, I mean, they've said it. They've said it. So, you know, they've said, you you were spoiled. We got it much harder than you. Um, you're clearly the favourite. They've said these words to me, you know. As a, as a member of this family, I can confirm I've heard those <laughs> assumptions made. The thing is, is that I'm not really bitter about it because... <laughs> clearly. Yeah, I'm fine with it. I like when they, you know, my, my brother always said, you're a bit of a princess. And I was like, yeah, I am. I'm okay with that. I think it's I think it's right. Um but I don't think that I was spoiled. I think that my parents sort of in a way had it easier because they just at that time then they just had me. Mm-hmm. They were older, they had more money, they were you know very laid back. So I don't know that I was spoiled so much as just had a different experience. I had a different experience. Yeah, mm. they were they were different parents when I had them for sure than they were when, you know, yeah. in the early 60s when my oldest brothers were born, you know, so. Yeah, and that's, and I think that's the the interesting convers- conversation. So if we had your mum and dad and your brothers and your sister in, yeah. we would say, so tell us what, so we would, you know, tell us what we're going to ask your mum now, you know, what do you think it was like for her, you know, whenever you two were born and whenever you, you she was bringing you up? Mm. What, what sort of things... Um, influencing her parenting do you think what do you think she's going to say and then mm-hmm. I you know we would explore with the, with them and then I would check it out with mum mm-hmm. is that right what was yeah. it like can you remember this can you because of those stories so if mum was able to say you know I actually you know was extremely nervous as a mum I we didn't have very much money 
I was terrified. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, everybody else around me were, you know, appeared to be really expert and I had no Not idea. Not Angela Lloyd, no way. <laughs> she knew what she was doing from she day dot. is in charge. She knows what's going on, that woman. But did she but at that point, do you think? I, think I mean, do you think did, if you honestly, said to her, yeah. you know, what were you like whenever you were, I mean, and it might be interesting to ask your dad then, do, you know, was he your experience? He didn't know what he was doing, but... I mean, he would say that. He would yeah. say, I was a wee bit unsure of this. What did but she said it was all okay. And then, we're, you know, yeah. she was quite, she was really, she's a capable person. And she's always been like that. And I'm sure at 21, when she had her first baby, she was less confident mm-hmm. in her abilities. But I think mostly she got on with it. And she was so delighted to be a mother that she was just, you know, she was mm-hmm. really, I think if you're, if you're very happy, if that's what you want, that goes a long way into helping you solve any problems that come up or, you know, meet any mm-hmm. learning needs that you need to, to meet sort of thing. So I wonder maybe then we would ask your, I would be really interested in asking your brother about um, what is it that you notice ha- happened with your with uh, Emma uh-huh. that, that let you know that she was being spoiled over mm-hmm. you? Yeah. And would your mum agree? Because very often when you ask those questions, they'll come up with, well, she gets this and she gets that and she's told this and she's blah, 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 whatever it is. Then um, the mother will come in and say, can I just remind you that I paid this amount of money for your guitar lessons and and we took you everywhere and we did this and blah, blah. And suddenly the conversation changes so that you have an experience where the your brother is reminded of the of belonging mm-hmm. and he's reminded of the 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 relationship yes and so my question to to your brother is what what it, what why is it important for you or how come it's important for you that you talk about Emma as somebody who's spoiled or mm-hmm. a princess what is happening what are you seeing yes Do, is it are you is there a sense that you know she's she is living a life Getting that you better want to than you did live? yeah no absolutely and actually what that makes me think of which I think is an interesting point is that and this was something that I had to deal with in the PhD is that there's there's some I, ca- I can't remember the quote off the top of my head but a particular person who was working in um uh research and it might not have been with families but it was certainly with like multiple people and they said there's as many truths as there are people you know there's as many truths as there, as there are individuals and um I sort of thought that as well as that there's a sort of a shared truth you know and you might you might be able to try and arrive at the shared truth through that that kind of work or or a shared agreement maybe more than a shared truth I don't know you know what does truth mean really but there's the, uh, all those different opinions and that must come up a lot in family therapy where people have different views of what the problem is or what other people's roles are or. Yeah, I mean, our focus is less about the problem and less about even the agreement and much mm-hmm. more about how do you arrive at the agreement. Yeah. You know, it's about the process. It's about the process, yeah. We're much more interested in um, the dynamic between them. You know, do, does it get through? You know, or are we seeing people who are um, silenced by the questions? Are we seeing people who can't? There are many, many people when you go in, they want to tell you the the story Mm. and they tell you the story over and over and over again. And so, you know, we might say so that so, you know. uh, Hannah, that's the fifth time you've told that story now. Is there something (laughs) that you think I haven't heard? 
Mm. Yeah. <laughs> about that story. Wow. Because it's important yeah. for it's clearly important to you and um you're not do they feel you're not understanding uh, the story or you you're not getting that, yeah, the story? Is it, yeah. Is, is there something that I don't understand? And yeah, you do understand my mom is a bitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you haven't told her that she's I'm going, okay, so if I did say that, so say we said, right, okay, your mom's to blame and you know, should let's let let's all blame mum. Because, yeah, she that was a terrible thing that she did. Mm. How how would that, do you think, help you move forward now? Would that be helpful for everybody to agree that, that, that mum is a bitch? I'm guessing mostly the answer to that question is no. No? No. no. The answer is yes a lot of the time. The answer <laughs> really? is oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, because well, they would, feel absolutely was, vindicated. Yeah, they would be satisfied like, then if people could agree with them that, that yes. mum is a bitch, yeah. So then we go, right, okay, so do, right, do, do we need to do anything more? Uh, you know. I mean, it's done in a, a humor way. Yeah. Humor, yeah. We're, we're using a bit of humor in that in that sense. We're not. Mm. I think what we're trying to to say is, in the, in the same way as the the problem was focused on you, if we then focus the problem on somebody else, all you're doing is shifting the problem. Mm-hmm. What we want to now do is say, right, how do you get to the point where you don't know you no longer need somebody to blame? Mm-hmm. Where do we? How do we get to the point where you two can have a conversation about this, and have a different opinion, mm. or have a different idea, and for you to keep in relationship with each other? Yeah, because there's never going to be conversations where everyone just goes, "Yes, we all agree. It's unanimous." Mm. On to the next. Thing. No, and a lot of the time you're talking about hurt feelings. Yes, yeah. and that that has to be acknowledged. So it it you you absolutely have to say that was a terrible thing that happened and it shouldn't have happened. Oh, let's let's talk about the terrible thing. Mm. And mm. and sometimes that's you know you know parents often you know blaming children for eating yeah. disorder, blaming children for self harming, and feeling very bad about the blame, but they can't. You know, what, why did you do that? Why didn't you come to me and talk to me? Why can you not talk to me? Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, it's not about, you know, you're a bad person. It's, you know, I thought I had a different relationship. So we talk and say, if I was to ask Emma why she didn't come and talk to you about it, what do you think Emma's going to say? Mm. So so that you, you, it gives you an opportunity to think about how come how, you know, what is it about your way of communicating with Emma that might make it difficult for her to talk to you about it? What do you think Emma's going, what, what do you think Emma would have said? Mm. And I guess you? you can't, like, like people can't have those conversations on their own. No, it's very, it's, it's extremely rare anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't talk to, we don't talk to each other like that generally. No. no. Um, But... We do, we can communicate openly and I think that part of that is because there's nothing so bad has happened between us that has made us go inwards and and close up, you know, because the other thing is, is that you're talking about blame there and, you know, whenever families are experiencing distress, particularly if there's a child or an adolescent um, who is experiencing something like depression or suicidality or an eating disorder or something like that I think a lot of society would automatically be going okay well it's the parents Mm -hmm. fault and and while there's bound to be things that are being 
you know, miscommunicated in the family and maybe there's, you know, fractured attachments. Sometimes those things are, are the, the problem itself is causing a lot of the fractured dynamics. So when something mm-hmm. like that enters into a family, mm-hmm. you know, the, the shame that a parent can feel about how did I not see this coming? How did I not prevent this? What have I done wrong? Sometimes that just can close things down and really make it worse. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it's just, I always think in, in mental illness, it's really important to, to avoid the blame part because it's so unhelpful. You know, who's at fault or who's not at fault is not so much you know, the important thing, because these things happen to people, they happen to the best of people, they happen to the best of parents and they happen to the best of families, you know. The the difficulty is the young person or the parent are very good at blaming themselves. It's mm. very rare that we, you ha- we, we don't really have conversations where it's outward blame, interestingly. Sometimes we do. Mm. But it's that mostly case when the mum was a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was her but, fault then, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But... It's mostly blame and shame. You know, it's mostly, you know, as you were saying, you know, a, a parent thinking, you know, how come this has happened to me? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And then feeling bad, you know, about the fact they've had that thought. Yeah. You know, so it, and also it's not, I mean, I know I work in mental health, but um, it could be family therapy, it can be anything, cancer. Cancer can be a huge silencer. Yes. Because you have to talk, ultimately talk about the possibility of death. And that is terrifying for Absolutely. so many people. And also, um, just it's very um, present at the minute because we've just had the Outburst um, Festival in Northern Ireland, the Outburst Queer Festival. And uh, there's been several talks about AIDS during that. Mm-hmm. And one of the talks recently was two guys who have AIDS. Um, and this There's a talk on tonight, which is about... Uh, activists who'd worked in New York um, during the height of the AIDS ap- epidemic. But I think AIDS is one of those things still mm-hmm. where you're sh- you, you're sort of shocked that people with AIDS are actually in the room. Like mm-hmm. there's still this thought of, well, you just have to go away and, you know, take yourself away and be in another room in another place or whatever, away from public eyes or whatever like that. Mm-hmm. Um so I definitely think that there's some illnesses that are, like physical illnesses, that are extremely silencing and extremely yeah. um, filled with shame. Yeah. And, you know, I think AIDS is definitely still one of them now in 2020, bloody one. Yeah, you're either talking to them with a huge amount of pity mm, yeah. and uh, treating them like kid gloves, which can be... yeah incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. especially if you're not planning to die anytime soon yeah <laughs> uh, and or it can you can feel you know don't want to talk about it but you know how did you get that yeah <laughs> does that mean what does that mean what did you do yeah and those questions are very taboo when it comes to yeah you know talking because you're talk, asking somebody about intimate details about mm-hmm. their life and that's not really most people thing. know that that's not really the done thing, so they just don't say anything. But there's all sorts of assumptions happening in their head yeah. that are unsaid. You're talking to all the how do you how do you bring forth the unsaid story or the untold stories or the untold ideas? Um, and when is it appropriate? Um, so you said earlier that you think everybody could benefit from family therapy. Yeah. Do you mean all? 
families. Yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, you, you, you don't necessarily, I don't think you necessarily have to have a problem to come into family therapy. I think it's always useful to have um, somebody facilitating conversations with your family just to find out who you are, who are you, what do you do, how do you talk, mm. how do you talk together, you know, what, you know, what do you love, what do you not like, what happens when she does this, what happens when they do that, you know, th- those are the sorts of, you know, questions. John Burnham is another family therapist who talks about warming the context, that's one of his uh-huh. um, phrases, his ideas, and what he means is that you... Um, set up the conversation in a way that allows people to feel, oh, I think I could begin to talk here. <laughs> Do you imagine that if you had a family that came, so that would be a lovely luxury for a start is the first thing I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. That would be nice if we could all, like it's like a kind of a health check, but for mm-hmm. your family relationships. <laughs> yeah. In um, an ideal world, that would be. Yeah. You may have noticed, Martha, that we are very pro-therapy. Yes. That's our whole deal, really. That's our whole shtick. Yeah. Um, but if you, imagine if a, th- if a family came to you and they were like, look, we don't really have any particular issue that we're coming with. But we just want to kind of just, you know, check things out and see we're all okay. Would you imagine that problems would quickly be uncovered? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I suppose what I'm really interested in is that I've said three times now that there's it's not about the problems. (laughs) Oh yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, you're coming back to the problems. Coming back to the problems. Yeah, Yeah. so and I think that is so typical because obviously people come to therapy for to to manage their problems. But as you talk about a lot in the Thanks Therapy podcast. The times whenever you benefit most are the times whenever you're actually feeling good mm-hmm. and that you're up for conversations that help you process what's happening in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, so, I mean. Sure. You see, okay, I've done my, I've done my homework. I've, I've listened to them all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's good. That's lovely to hear. But, it's sort of um, weird, but um, it's weird for us still when people say they've been listening it to is it. quite strange. When we know, you know, we've. We talk to them in person. It's kind of like, oh, you know a lot of stuff that yeah. I've said now. Personal yeah. things that I've recorded and then released to the public and you've heard them. In the world. Oh, dare you? <laughs> but you're right. Like, I, I have a sort of weird picture in my head when you were saying that about going into a session when you're feeling quite good. Mm-hmm. It's like coming in, I don't know, it's like turning up at the swimming pool already in your swimmers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't have to go into the changing room and get changed. <laughs> do yes. you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you don't need to do the whole... <laughs> process of like right and maybe you're not really feeling it and you have to shed a layer and you have to lock the locker yes. all this stuff I don't really know where I'm going with that analogy but it's been all over the place but there's like a sort of there's a freedom of yeah. access or something to your to your like mm-hmm. self that you don't necessarily get if you're like in my experience if I'm turning up saying this thing happened and it was awful mm-hmm. or this thing happened and I don't know what to do I'm just kind of turn up going I don't know how I am let's see what happens and very unexpected stuff happens and I I find that really Mm -hmm. rewarding yeah so yeah imagine imagine a family all turning up and just saying we're just here to Mm -hmm. (laughs) give it a try yeah yeah (laughs) wonder what would come up it's so uh, it's sort of unpredictable in in a good way yeah and I think there would be lots of of there's lots of of things would come up because you're just asking questions about you know who thinks what about what Mm. And then you can you can have ideas. We also um, 
comment on what we call enactments in the room. Yeah. So, for example, if you two started to have a bickering experience, that's another Northern Irish phrase. I hope. Yeah, bickering. <laughs> you know, sort of <laughs> arguing a bit or uh-huh. just yamming at each other. Mm, another yeah. Northern Yaman. Irish phrase, sorry. <laughs> yamming is good. <laughs> um, then uh, I might say, um, I'm interested what what what's just what do you think's happening now or mm. is this something that happens a lot at, at home or if i wasn't here what would happen how would this get resolved mm. um and that is really can be really helpful for families to talk about it in the in the moment mm-hmm. um rather than having to describe he said she said and that you know because you're going back into story yes oh wow yeah yeah I I mean I mostly worked with individuals but whenever I did um work with couples because obviously couples came as parents you know mm-hmm. um one of the interesting dynamics is one silencing the other so mm-hmm. one going no that's not the that's mm-hmm. not the point that's no no don't say that you know like they had an idea of how they wanted to present this mm-hmm. information mm-hmm. and the other person was getting in the way of that or saying stuff that they thought was stupid or beside the point or something like mm-hmm. that. I always find that an interesting dynamic and it's, it can be hard to resist doing that. I find myself sometimes doing it when I'm at the doctor with my child yeah, and they start to say, well, my left knee is sore and my I'm like, but we are here about, <laughs> we are kind of here about the chest problem at the minute. Thank you. <laughs> So it's hard to resist that, you know what I mean? Oh, yes. But I'm much more interested in what, you know, what's happening. So I would say, so I'm noticing that you're silencing uh, Hannah there. Mm. So, you know, if I asked Hannah, how come you're silencing her, what would Hannah say? Mm. And then I would say to Hannah, and so how, what, what do you think Emma's silencing? What, what, what does she not want us to hear? Mm. And then that just tells us it's not about finding out the issue. We're no more interested in the issue, to be fair. We're only really interested in what's happening between you. Uh And it's about process rather than content. Yeah. So, I mean, that is, that is, I think, do you think that that separates systemic therapy from other therapies? Because while, you know, so I worked in brief solution focused therapy. So we're not wanting to focus on the problem, but we do want to know what it is. Yeah. The start, you know. And, um, that dynamic often came from the fact that I would say nine times out of 10 mums, not dragged necessarily, but certainly they initiated the appointment mm-hmm. and they were bringing dad to say, we need to go and mm-hmm. do this. This is going to be important. And so they had a very clear, and it actually, whenever you said about the idea of the refer, um, more than one occasion, what they thought they were coming with, was did not turn out it didn't turn out the way they thought it was going to turn out sometimes they were bringing dad to say to hope that a third party could tell dad what he was doing wrong (laughs) or back them up and of course I didn't do that and I wasn't you know it wasn't taking sides you know so yes that's that's something that I noticed was that moms were bringing dads to and and also dads often when they first came in they were quite defensive because they thought that's what I was going to do. Yeah. And some sometimes they even said that I suppose you're going to take her part and oh yeah, of course. <laughs> against me, aren't you? And there'll mm-hmm. be everybody against me. Yeah. And we say yes. <laughs> yes, we are. You are you're the you're the terrible you're person. The I can't believe you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So 
just for people, if they're listening and they're thinking, do you know what? Actually, you know, things that are happening in my family and the way that we have of relating to each other, I think family therapy would be really useful for us. What could they expect if they were able to access family therapy? What would be the process that they would, what would welcome them if they if they entered into family therapy? What, how, why might they come in, you mean? or No, I suppose I mean um, more, so if I was thinking, I, I want to know what to expect. What could I expect? Well, yes, I haven't talked to, talk to you a wee bit about how we work. Yes. That might so be that, helpful. That's what I, yeah, that's so what I mean, yeah. We don't work as an individual. There. Well, some, some of us do um, because we don't have the luxury of, of a, a consulting partner, partner or a team, but mostly we prefer to work in twos or threes or fours. Oh. Okay. Yeah, and uh, the yeah, we work in we work in partnership with Queen's University Belfast, mm-hmm. um, and they uh, ask us to supervise the master's students, right? Okay. Which is an amazing opportunity because it means that we get to have a full team. So you have three people um, as your team and one lead therapist. So the way that it's set up in in if we are, if you have what we call the reflecting team, mm-hmm. which uh, is a very particular model, it's called the Milan model. Okay. Um, because it was devised in Milan. Okay. Funny enough. <laughs> but basically, what you have is you have a two two way mirror, mm-hmm. uh, and your team or your consulting partner sits behind the mirror. Right. Um, and you have the lead therapist in the room with the family. Okay, so one therapist in the room with the family. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, I have access to the therapist in the room, the lead mm-hmm. therapist, with, through an earpiece. Right, okay. So the team can feed questions into the lead therapist if we have questions about what uh, they're talking about. Wow. So we're working alongside her. So it's not just one therapist and, ever, and we're all watching going, oh, really interesting. No, we're working really hard to think yeah. about, you know, questions that might work. Um some people use telephones because we don't all have equipment, especially in the NHS. The NHS is falling apart. I'm not sure whether you've noticed all <laughs> the last couple of years. However, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, um, so the, the, the lead therapist t- spends uh, about 40 minutes, 45 minutes doing what we call the session, talking in the session. And every so often, depending on what's being said or what's talking about, we will feed in a question. So mm. we might, I might feed a question in and say, you know, we were really, the, the team were really interested in, um, you know, mum was talking about um, how uh, important it was that uh, um, John goes to school. Um, I, I wonder, could you explore with her her own experience of education mm-hmm. and so that's just a way of prompting the, the the lead therapist maybe to explore um education and that can open up a whole other conversation or a whole other um story or idea about how come it's really important that this child goes to goes to school okay and it might be very different for the father so the father might have had a different experience of education where he maybe you know breezed through education and thinks, you know, you'll be grand, sure, you can go to university whenever you want. Whereas the mother might think, no, I worked really hard to get where I am. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to follow the right path. And if you don't do it now, you'll never do it. You know, so that opens up, that helps you to have different conversations. Mm -hmm. So after 45 minutes, the then lead therapist will say, um, 
we will break now for reflections. And so the families swap over rooms. So the family come in behind the screen mm-hmm. and we, the reflecting team, go in front with the lead therapist, sometimes with the lead therapist or, with, or, or not, depending on how many people are in the team. Right. And we have a conversation mm-hmm. in front of the family where they hear. So it's a bit like eavesdropping, but in a positive what? way. Yeah. And it's really powerful. The families love it, especially the kids. And Wow. We talk, I had no idea about this at all. Yeah. Me and Emma are reacting for the visual purposes <laughs> of this. We are aghast. Big eyes. Big eyes. Shocked faces. I'm, I'm so <laughs> amazed by that. Lots of people, um, when we talk about it with our families, they initially go, nah, no, I'm not doing yeah. that. And then they come in and they see the equipment and they say, oh, we'll have a go. And then afterwards they're like, see you next week and love it. Wow. Amazing. That's incredible. There, it, there is something very, um, I suppose, reinforcing about um, or validating about hearing your story being reflected back to you and hearing people say things about you that you have said in the, in the room mm. and you have an experience of being heard. And mm-hmm. that's very often the feedback. Oh my goodness! Yeah. This is the first time I've actually been listened to here. Wow! You know, okay, that sort of quite, and it, it doesn't mean that it's the first time people have understood what they're trying to say. It just means that this is an experience of that they have had, which is very visceral. Mm. And how many sessions would that be then? How many times would they come so back? The Milan model would say that you see families once a month, mm-hmm. and normally the you would see families between six and nine months, which is nice because. You tend to sort of get a full year with families, even though it's only um, six to nine sessions. So it's it's not any more than, you know, you would have with normal CBT or any of the other sort of um, yeah. therapies. Mm-hmm. However, you can work with families, you know, up to two and three years, yeah. you know, depending on what people are struggling with. Mm. Um, so okay. we don't we don't have a prescriptive, you know, number of times. We don't do it like that. And so you don't work with any of the family members individually? Um, in CAMS, the young person very often has an individual therapist. Right. Okay. And so that's how they come in usually to the, to the family therapy team. So okay. the individual therapist will say, I'm working with this young person. There's some systemic issues that I think would be really helpful. And, you know, we'd like to refer into family therapy. And okay. So, so the young person very often is seeing somebody individually. We would also offer different and combinations of family members. So sometimes we say we just want to see the siblings or we just want to see parents okay, or we just want to see right. mom and, and mom and daughter or we want to see dad and daughter or... or okay. You know, um, and that just can support conversations that might be slightly more sensitive. Yeah. You know, and, you know, hopefully will be helpful. The reason, one of the reasons I was so shocked is because my knowledge of um, family therapy practice is much more... Um, attachment focused family therapy and working with young people specifically and they have a process whereby they um have a session with the young person they have a session with the parent and then they have a session together because the 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 goal is to repair attachments so it's i think they must it must be that the the best way to do that is to first find out what's the young person's you know what's happening for the young person and then find out what's happening for mom and, and then bring them together and and start to work on that in relationship <clears throat> um so that's why i was like 
but also just the fact that whenever you said that they swap positions and the family members go in behind the mirror, I was thinking, and they turn the mirror off or whatever. So I thought can't. that as well. And I was like, and presumably the family do not know they're, they're not privy to the about, conversation yeah. by no, the they professionals. Totally are. And what's <sighs> it, it's funny actually because we had one we have had a number of experiences where we were in so we had a session where <laughs> um we were beginning our reflection and so on and you're talking so I'm just thinking about mom and blah 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 whatever you start your session and we got knock on the door. Uh, excuse me, just to let you know, uh, we can hear everything that you're saying. <laughs> yeah, that's the point. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, oh. but we want you to. Oh, 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 right, okay. So that I suppose oh. for me, that was such an interesting observation because mm-hmm. very often when you go into mental health services, mm-hmm. you ha- you do have experiences of professionals talking about you. Talking about you, a- yeah. Away from you. So yeah. they had, I mean, we, I do it myself um, in my own work where we have professional meetings where mm-hmm. we talk about what might be going on, what might be helpful for this family you know who might be best best to work with who so families are used to that mm-hmm. they, they have a, an experience of that so I think that's where it's come from they yeah. just assumed that we were going to go have a wee think and then come back and talk to them yeah deliver your verdict or yes. something yeah. yeah I mean but I mean, that's often I think can be part of the shame associated with it because whenever you have to admit that you you know you need to go and mm-hmm. ha- seek some help or whatever um and you have this imagination that you're going to be being talked about by professionals or your family mm-hmm. or your, mm-hmm. you know, your way of interacting is going to be talked about being mm-hmm. by professionals. That I think that's very shame inducing as well. Yeah, even mm-hmm. when you do expect it. I mean, that's never going to be comfortable. Yeah. And I think also when somebody makes an assumption about who you are because of small bits of information that they've been given, that for me certainly I I always want to justify to them you know I'm not I'm not just that I'm mm. I'm also you know uh, a professional woman I'm also um, a mother I'm also in this position so it 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 can be hard to hear a professional making a statement this is what you are yeah because that can that gets can get written down you know problem with alcohol. Mm, but yeah. that that means you know potentially you have a problem with alcohol for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's because it's written down somewhere. Entire identity as well. Yeah. And that becomes, yeah. They don't put caveats like "lovely person." Yeah, very interested. They, yeah, there's just that one big big yeah. bad word on the yeah. paper. Yeah, which makes I mean goes back to what you were saying earlier, but it makes sense why people are so keen to tell you everything that's happened to be like I'm not. I'm not so terrible. But yes, you need this context exactly. here. Need all yeah. this context. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is I'm so interesting. I'm conscious that before we exhaust ourselves entirely, um, that we should uh, t- talk about this problem here. So we would love to get your view on this. I'm now really conscious of using the word problem all the time. It's <laughs> <laughs> not about the problem. I know. <laughs> but nevertheless, okay. here it is. Okay, so this writer in her says, I am the oldest child in my family and I have already left home, but my younger siblings are still at home. One of my sisters is 14 and having a lot of problems. She throws big tantrums over seemingly nothing and can be violent with others in the house, especially my mum. She also kicked a hole in the wall once and broke her phone another time. She has also hardly been going to school since after lockdown. 
Now that I'm a bit older, I can see that my mum antagonises her and makes things worse and my dad just stays out of it. My sister seems really unhappy and lonely, but when I try to talk to her, she just storms off or shouts. I have been going to therapy and she has suggested family therapy, but when I brought this up to my mum, she dismissed it and told me that my sister just needed to grow up and that it was a phase. I feel like things are only going to get worse and nobody is listening to each other. This person seems worried. Yeah, they seem worried about their little sister. What do you? What's your take on that, Martha? I would concur <laughs> that they well, could benefit from family therapy. I thought you might say that. <laughs> I also concur. I think so. There we go. Thanks, therapy. We're done now. I mean, so, that's always our answer. But yes, yes. So no, yes. I agree. Of course. I think um, it's always very difficult to. It's very difficult to know with young people what is going on. Mm. Um, and yes, it could be. And I, I suspect that if mum has an older um, girl who's left, mm-hmm. that she may have experienced adolescence as well. And so it may be that she is much more laid back about what is going on and that she is just, you know, ho- you know that what we t- talk about this white knuckle ride that we do with our, our adolescents. Yes. Sometimes adolescents just are really struggling. Yeah. And you, the only thing that you can do is provide a consistent approach and mm. say, you know, here's your dinner, here are your clean clothes, the, there's a hot water in the shower. Where do you want me to take you? Everything's okay. I, you know, we love you. <laughs> Remember that. Um, that's really annoying. You've broken your phone. That hole in the wall. I'm not happy about it. How are we going to talk about it? Mm. So I don't know that most parents, I mean, if my daughter did that, um, I would have something to say about it. It's not very so, calm inducing that kind no. of um, angry outburst. Um, that was something that we experienced a lot in my um, workplace was adolescents having having real serious angry outbursts. And sometimes mm-hmm. it was um, a one-off because an argument had escalated, but parents thought and instantly thought, they have an anger problem. Yeah. And sometimes it was, had become much more of a, a significant problem. Um, and so then there was a program, um, Walking on Eggshells, which was about um, nonviolent resistance and using that approach to kind of uh, scale things back and, and try and address somebody who's using anger and violence Again, as you say, to control the, mm-hmm. the the family in a way. Was that the Parenting NI program? It was, yeah. yeah. You have no idea how many of our parents have done the Walking on Edge yeah. program and absolutely loved it. Yeah. And what their feedback was, not only was it important to hear that, first of all, this is relatively normal. It happens, of, that yeah. This happens a lot. But they were able to meet um, other parents who then they, they were able to um, make alliances with other parents parents mm-hmm. um and got a lot of sort of tips and support and they again stopped feeling ashamed yes stopped feeling that you know they were the worst parent in the world and that they couldn't possibly be a good parent because their teenager was the only child who was violent yes well so, one of the, it's so important to talk about it is and one of the first stages in that is called breaking the silence and what it encourages the parents to do essentially is tell their family members yeah. so it's to pick up the phone and tell granny listen, this is what's been happening in our house mm-hmm. because you can become like a silent prisoner in your home totally. um, under the control of, of this 
of your child, essentially, you know, so. But also that idea about um, it takes a village. It takes it takes a village to, to raise uh, children. Mm-hmm. It's not. And, and that is really true. You, you, there are people in your child's life that are important. Um, they are important adults and they cannot do what you do. You are only going to be able to be the mum or the dad. Yes. So there are other adults who can say things and do things with your young people, with your with your children, that you will not be allowed to do because you have a different relationship. And it's really important to allow them to do that and allow them to take them off and go, you know, it, you know, that's not cool. What yeah. on earth are you thinking of? Mostly whenever we say that to young people, they go, I know, I don't know what it is. And I, yeah. my mummy now hates me now and I don't think I'll ever be able to speak to her again. And she's she's going to hate me forever. Mm-hmm. Going, maybe not forever, 20 years maybe, but not forever. <laughs> you know, you, you, you try and, you know, make, yeah. la- make light of it. You have to say to this is not the end of the world, by the way. You can definitely repair this. Yes. Do you know? I do have to come back to the it takes a village, but I just wanted to highlight that aunties are, you yeah. know, one of the really strong relationships that you can have. Aunties are key in my experience. <laughs> so right. Shout out to my nephew and niece. Uh-huh. Aww. Yeah. Um so the so this writer inner, because I do want to come back to yeah. the it takes a village thing, but this writer inner, so sometimes when you are an older sibling in a family you can be maybe a bit more critical or you can mm-hmm. be, you know, it could be that this person has a tendency towards anxiety and is, and, and mum is using a bit of benign neglect and sort of saying, yeah. she just needs to grow up. She's fine. It wasn't, you know, an isolated mm-hmm. incident, but the, the. She is worried about her being lonely and she's she is worried, worried about, about her being unhappy isolating. and lonely. And yeah. you do have to pay attention to, to young, uh, children who are lonely and isolating because they can go into dark places. Um, and so it is about how do you open up conversations? So you don't necessarily need to go in and go, right, mom, family therapy or nothing. But you can go in and say, talks about talks. Mm-hmm. What would it be like to talk about this? What do you think it would be like for her to talk about this, mommy? What do you think would be like for you? What would be the worst thing for you, mum, to talk about this? You know, yeah. how, how might, you know, what would you be most worried about? Do you think the therapist would think that you're a terrible mum? Mm. Or, you know, are you worried that they're going to say that she's that there's something else wrong? Or, yeah. do, do you, does she worry that she has something else? Yes. Like a severe and enduring mental illness? Yes. Mm. You know, a, a lot of our parents come in and say, you know, is it bipolar? Yeah. And we're like, mm, probably not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> probably adolescence. <laughs> However, that do- it doesn't necessarily mean it's not. So it, you know, it's about opening up again the conversation. What is? What yeah. makes you think it's bipolar? Well, you know, my my brother had it, my mother had it, and I'm terrified that it's it's in the family. Mm. Okay, so let's talk about what what does it mean to have bipolar? You know, it, having those conversations are are much better than not. Yeah. But sometimes those conversations in of itself are terrifying. So mm. yeah. um, the other thing, just in that subject of a light touch, it could be that, you know, she's trying to talk to her. I don't know what that means necessarily, trying to talk to her sister and getting told go away and, and you know, she's storming off. But what if she like took her out shopping or took her for a coffee or, you know, spent time with her in a way that wasn't designed to, not but not necessarily designed to get to the bottom of what was going on or challenge her behavior or anything like that, but was about just building the relationship um, and seeing if she could support her that way. Totally. If you can come in underneath a, 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 a 
a child or a young person and just to hang out with them um, and give them a different experience to the experience that they're having, then, you know, it's like gold dust for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. Absolutely. Um, But bottom line, therapy. therapy. (laughs) Family therapy. Um, Yeah. And we we hope that, we hope that... um, answers things to a certain extent or certainly opens up the conversation. Um, But to come back to that, it takes a village phrase. I do love that phrase and I know Mm. we use it a lot, but I love it. I actually attended a conference, the title of which was um, It Takes a Village and it was all about parental mental illness and it was in, and substance misuse and it was in Oslo Mm. and it was a wonderful conference. It was really, really enlightening. But on that subject, actually, I came across a quote today, which I find really powerful. And it's very relevant, I think, to this um, particular problem. And the the this phrase is... <laughs> She's got us again. <laughs> um, it is very relevant to this particular writer inner's discussion. I don't, I can't do it. I just Concern. need that word. Concern. Okay. Concern. So the quote is... Um, the child that isn't embraced by the village will burn it to the ground to feel its warmth. Mm. Isn't I don't that something? Understand that? Can well, you elaborate? So, if it's the same thing as like, um, you know, children will will seek out negative attention, yeah, over, because over no, over no attention, no attention yeah. at all. Um, and I mean, I suppose I'm thinking about it in terms of family. So, a child that's being emotionally neglected, essentially, in a family will certainly make that, will make some noise about that, will make their feelings heard in a different way. And often it will seem in a really destructive way. Mm. Um, and in this, so this is a proverb from, a from um, I think it's an African proverb. And again, it's very relevant to the village thing. I just love it. I think it's so beautiful. The child that is embraced by the village will burn it to the ground to feel its warmth. Mm. So, Hannah, you pointed out that we hadn't explained how we know Martha. Yes. So she knows my sister, your mum. Yes. In a professional context. Yeah. Well, actually, I know your parents. Uh, Yes. There's a family connection. My, our parents, my parents, your grandparents grandparents. (laughs) know your parents and your family and and you as well. That's right. Yeah. Yes. I was uh, reared on Richard Lydon's um, humour. Yes, <laughs> humour and transactional analysis. Weren't that's how yeah. I was raised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's great fun. Both of them are brilliant. He yeah. is very good fun, and uh, they're still continue to be hilarious at every opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you you met me the day I was born. Yes. Right? Well, maybe not the day, but then maybe the day after. Oh, Angela was only in one day. I'm fairly sure she wouldn't have needed to stay any longer than a day. Well, just a baby. You don't need to be hanging around the hospital if you have a baby. Yes, don't no, need to we, make a fuss about um, it. We, my cousin uh, had a baby mm-hmm. and uh, we, I was probably 10 at the time. And we were allowed, in those days, we were allowed to go to the hospital to visit the baby. Uh-huh, yeah. It was so, so exciting. Nice. And so we went up to visit this baby and lo and behold, mommy, <laughs> mommy went over to see my cousin. And then she said, oh, there's Angela Lydon. Oh, well, you beautiful baby. And Left she went it. off to look at you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. looking at Susan's baby. I'm always drawn focus. I just can't help it. <laughs> 
But we were all allowed to go in and look at your baby as well. Yeah. Look at the new baby. So, yes. So, yeah. And then, you know, what? X number of 39 years later. years later. 39 here. and a half years later, you came on our podcast. And thank you very much for thank coming you, on our podcast. It's been a huge pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Martha. Thanks, Martha. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks therapy. therapy. Don't be doing burps. This is why you shouldn't just drink a load of <laughs> a load of Thai food Eat before two you're... two bowls of Pad Thai and then yeah. expect to be normal. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> Get your coughing out of the way. You've got water. It's just begun. We have a lot of coughing incidents on this as well. <laughs> 